They've worked in and around the wrestling business. They've studied thousands of hours of wrestling. And now, they bring to you the greatest legends, Hall of Famers, creative minds, and both current and future stars of pro wrestling. They are... Primetime Pod and Chad, the two-man power trip of wrestling! Two-man power trip of wrestling brought to you and powered by Spartacon. Spartacon takes place August 15th and 16th live from the Blue Crabs Baseball Stadium in Waldorf, Maryland. Please visit redserpents.com for more information. And with that being said, my name is Chad. And as always, I'm joined by my tag team partner, Primetime, John Paz and John our guest on today's show is none other than one half of the Killer Bees, one half of the High Flyers, and that is Jumpin' Jim Brunzel. And when you think of Jumpin' Jim, you got to think about the legendary, the late great Gorilla Monsoon and how he put over Jumpin' Jim's dropkick. What are your thoughts about Jumpin' Jim and I guess really the dropkick and is there anybody who does one today that's coming even close to Jumpin' Jim? Yeah, Gorilla Monsoon really put over that dropkick and when you really look at it and you go through the whole annals of time throughout the you know whole wrestling business as a whole, however long you've been watching, have you ever seen a better dropkick than Jumpin' Jim Brunzel? It's just the elevation he gets is crazy. So you go and you think of all the other awesome dropkicks and you try to match them. Mr. Perfect had a great standing dropkick. Unbelievable. Bob Holly had an awesome dropkick. Lance Storm had one of the best dropkicks I've ever seen. I mean, there's so many good guys. And obviously now I think the guy who probably has the best dropkick today is Kazuchika Okada, the IWGP champion over there in New Japan Pro Wrestling. His elevation is crazy, but it's funny. Are any of those guys' drop kicks better than Jumpin' Jim Brunzel? And it's hard to say for sure. That You know, obviously it's a lot of it's subjective, but it's hard to say for sure if you really think that uh, any of those guys have a better drop kick than Jumpin' Jim. Because his drop kick was amazing. And it, you know, it holds the test of time. And we're obviously, me and you, we're still comparing it today of how great his drop kick really was. You know, you think of the landscape, you think of the tag teams, you think of what the roster looked like at that point in the 80s when Jumpin' Jim and B. Bryan were having their run as the Killer Bees, but you think about the fact that they were on, really, the biggest card you could say in history, and that's WrestleMania three. but you can't discount what the tag team scene looked like in the WWF in the late 80s because there were so many teams that even as I was talking to Jumpin' Jim, I couldn't even remember some of them because I'm throwing out a couple names pretty rapid fire, but it's actually funny. You know, I left out their opponents, Sheik and Volkov, when I was going through it with Jumpin' Jim. It's just funny that they hold such a place in terms of that spot in the WWF in the late 80s, mid to late 80s, really, that sometimes I feel like it gets overlooked, but you can't deny WrestleMania three and their role that they had in that event. Yeah, WrestleMania three is just nuts. I mean, obviously the Killer Bees involved with uh, Sheik and Volkov, and a huge, huge ninety three thousand fans. Obviously, it's the biggest pro wrestling event, pretty much ever. Um, there's a couple in uh, some other countries that have happened that are pretty, pretty damn big themselves. But you know, as far as uh, the WWF is concerned, it's the biggest show they've ever done. Hogan, Andre in the main event, but. For Jim Brunzel and B. Brian Blair to be a big part of that show in a big way in that awesome tag division in the 1980s is just awesome. And it's a great testament to be able to go back and look and say, hey, I was on that card, the biggest wrestling event of all time. Nothing's ever going to top it. And the Bs taking on Sheik and Volkov was a pretty big match at that point in, um, point in time, especially in Jumpin' Jim's amazing career. 
You know, and obviously he is well remembered as half of the Killer Bees. But what is it that you find to be the most fascinating about Jumpin' Jim Brunzel's career that maybe it's not the first thing you think of when you think of his name? Because to me, it's actually funny that he had a run with the Mid Atlantic Heavyweight Championship that he mentioned a few times during the talk. But what's something to you that stands out about the history? of Jumpin' Jim that may not be the first thing that I hate to use the pun, but jumps out at you. And you think about with the Killer Bees, obviously with V. Brian Blair and Brunzel teaming for a long time, but even before that, you had a great tag team in the AWA with Jumpin' Jim, and that was with Greg Gagne, and they were the High Flyers. So Jumpin' Jim seems to always be in a great tag team, whether it's in the WWF or, or you know elsewhere, but also in the AWA. And it, it wasn't just with B. Brian Blair. He also had a great tag team partner in Greg Gagne, and they were pretty uh, dynamic at that point in time as far as, you know, quote-unquote, obviously their, their, their name is the High Flyers, but they did a lot more high flying than you, you, know, you had seen previous to them. And they were kind of a little bit of uh, the precursor to a lot of the high flying excellent uh, tag work you'll see today out of like you know a team almost uh, like the Young Bucks you know, not as obviously Brunzel and Gagne weren't as athletic but let's just say they never happened maybe you don't get a team like the Young Bucks today where you know a team is showing their versatility through the air and uh, doing a lot of uh, more high risk moves so Gagne and Brunzel as the high flowers I really think were great for the wrestling business and a great precursor to some of the great athletes we see in the tag visions uh, you know, that would precede them years later. Yeah, I totally completely agree with you about the high flyers and you can't discount the fact that he's been successful with multiple partners, but it's hard to not just keep going back to that era that Federation era of the WWF, and think about the tag team scene. I, I hate to keep harping on it, but you also have to remember they're, they were basically married to the Hart Foundation for what seemed like an eternity because it was pretty much almost all of 1986 and into 1987, and these guys, they were on every kind of show you could possibly think of, whether it was a house show or even Saturday Night's main event. They always managed to get matches together but I'm never going to complain because the tag team scene was so good at the time that any pairing would have been perfect for them and of course you can't forget the hearts but you know what are your thoughts again I I hate to talk about it again but we just we have to because the tag team scene was so prevalent at the time but what are your thoughts on that tag team scene a little bit more detail Uh, the tag team scene in the uh, 1980s just just insane how great the tag division was. It was just, I mean, Hart Foundation, Demolition, the British Bulldogs, the Rougeau Brothers, the Rockers, uh, LOD, the, uh, I think I mentioned the British Bulldogs, but let's just say them again because they were awesome. And then, of course, you throw in the Killer Bees, Brian Blair and Jim Brunzel. Awesome, awesome, awesome tag team. It's just it's funny, you just throw in any team and it's like, well, they're good workers versus they're good workers and they're going to steal the show and they're going to have a great match. And really, really thinking about their feud with the Hart Foundation, you go back and watch those matches, man, talk about awesome tag team rivalry. You could put those matches up against like Rock and Roll Express, Midnight Express, which I consider the, the greatest tag matches ever. Like Hart Foundation, Killer Bees totally holds up to them and it's just another awesome tag team feud to throw in the hat and to be honest if you put them against any tag team wrestling that you see today it's pretty funny because it's not even close to as good as how good the killer bees and heart foundation matches were and jumping jim brunzel obviously was a huge part of that and him and b brian blair were such a great great underrated tag team And then, you know, one other interesting fact about Jim Brunzel that I think could really stand out if you really want to break it down and look at the nuts and bolts of working a wrestling match, and that is his singles run post-Killer B from about 91 through about 93 as a, you know, I guess you could say undercard, you know, enhancement, something like that. Guy versus the likes of Shawn Michaels, Ric Flair, some great singles matches. Uh, He had very colorful tights, weren't very Killer B-like, but they were colorful, and he definitely stood out, and it was always good to see a guy like Brunzel getting in there. But what are your thoughts, if you can, about that that singles run just towards the end of when Brunzel was just about to leave the WWF? Yeah, you know, it's funny. I 
I went to uh, look back, and I'm like, oh, my God, that's right. Jim Brunzel was in the WWF for a lot longer than you, you would think he was. He had some great matches against HBK, like you said, and some great matches against Flair, like you said. And it's funny um, that a lot of people almost forget that because he was almost, uh, you know, more of a, like, I guess you could say almost like an enhancement guy at that point. But he was such a good veteran, he would always make these other guys look so good. And I just remember watching, like, Superstars or, you know, the lower um, – shows back then and just really enjoying seeing Jim Brunzel even even Monday Night Raw uh, seeing Jim Brunzel in there but it's funny it's like oh wow him with uh, he did wrestle without B Brian Blair in WWF but you know, as a kid you don't you know kind of don't think about it but when you go back and watch you're like oh my god I remember this match this was great or I remember how great uh, Jim Brunzel was totally totally underrated like I said before I mean very underrated in the ring so it's pretty cool thinking back that he you know, he had a lot of good one-on-one matches with Flair and Heartbreak Kid, Shawn Michaels. Yeah, totally. I couldn't agree with you more. And now, John, before we throw it over to Jumpin' Jim Brunzel, and before we get into a little two-man power trip of wrestling business, we just want to remind everybody that Spartacon is back, and Spartacon will take place August 15th and 16th live from the Blue Crabs Baseball Stadium in Waldorf, Maryland. Please visit RedSerpents.com for more information on Spartacon. And John, is there anything that you would like to share about Spartacon? And yes, of course. There will also be the best part of the show, and that is the Spartacon Marketplace, which will feature booth after booth after booth of unique, creative, and handmade products and vendors who are just as passionate as the fans who are attending. Remember Spartacus and other shows depicting ancient color uh, cultures will have their unique and creative items there, which is awesome. And on top of that, you will also see an impressive guest list of stars who who will be appearing there, who are from the show Spartacus. So that is also awesome. So folks, whenever you go to one of these events, hit up the vendor table, go to the marketplace. This is where you'll find not only people you can meet, and an awesome guest that we're starting the show that you can meet, but you also get tremendous, tremendous products to bring home. Little uh, little vendor items that are over there. So it's really, really cool, and I really think that's the best part of these shows is the vendors. So please check out the Spartacon Marketplace. In addition to all that, for those who will be traveling to Spartacon, there will be a special discounted rate at the Hilton Garden Inn and Hampton Inn Hotels. Both are located in Waldorf, Maryland. And to get that and more information, please go to RedSerpents.com. That is Spartacon, August 15th and 16th in Waldorf, Maryland at the Blue Crab Stadium. Remember, folks, it's coming up soon, so you want to go to RedSerpents.com, and that is for Spartacon. And one thing that we haven't mentioned, and you'll hear all about it, in the beginning and at the end of my talk with Jumpin' Jim Brunzel, and that is the book Matt Lands. Jumpin' Jim Brunzel's put this together with the help of Blurb. And Primetime, could you tell us a little bit about Blurb before you give us a little bit of two-man power trip of wrestling business? And don't forget about Blurb. Blurb.com, Blurb Books. It's so easy to self-publish with Blurb, and obviously Jim Brunzel did that with the amazing book, Matt Lands. So please check out Blurb.com. Also, two-man power trip of wrestling business. Like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, at Wrestling Pal and at Two Man Power Trip. And don't forget about the website, tmptofwrestling.com. That is tmptofwrestling.com. And, of course, subscribe to us on YouTube, where we are forever uploading great, great clips from the likes of Kamala, Jim Ross, Jesse the Body Ventura, and many, many others. And don't forget to subscribe to us on iTunes as well. Please leave us a review. We would love to hear your feedback. Now, folks, we are going to send to a great interview that Chad conducted with 
one of the greats, the very underrated, the man with quite possibly the greatest dropkick in the history of the wrestling business, the former Killer B himself, a Hall of Famer, Jumpin' Jim, that's right folks, Jim Brunzel. Please enjoy. As the legendary Gorilla Monsoon would often say of tonight's guest, he had one of the best drop kicks in the history of the wrestling business. But he's also one of the most accomplished tag team specialists to ever grace the squared circle. And with that became a two-time AWA tag team champion alongside Greg Gagne as the, the High Flyers. And of course, he was also part of the iconic Killer Bees tag team with longtime partner B. Byron Blair. But now as the author of the book Matlands, Jumpin' Jim Brunzel chronicles his journey through the uncertain and sometimes dangerous road of professional wrestling. And with that being said, we welcome Jumpin' Jim Brunzel to the two-man power trip of wrestling. Thank you for joining us. Well, thanks, Ian. It's, it's always nice. You know, I, um, you know, here I'm going to be 66 years old, and I never envisioned that I'd be still talking on the airwaves about, uh, you know, my career, but uh, it just happens that way. And, uh, you know, uh, it was uh, five and a half years in the making, this doggone book. And um, what happened was, I, you know, I told stories, and I like to tell stories about the road and the wrestling, and I entertained my friends at different parties. And uh, somebody said, hey, you should write a book on that. So uh, about five and a half years ago, I started my wife got me a little dictaphone, and I, I spoke into it, and then I must have had, oh, I don't know, 40, 50 uh, stories. And then uh, from there, I just uh, would make notes and then write a story and then rewrite it and rewrite it. And over the course of five, five and a half years, we finally, you know, put it together. And uh, my wife, God bless her, <laughs> my wife, Mary, of 40 years, had to uh, reformat this book three different times to uh, make sure that it fit the format. For first, it was in a photo book, and when you try to self-publish, um, this photo book would have cost seventy-two dollars. So I didn't think wow. that would sell many on the market. So we made it into a trade book, and, um, and she had to redo it twice. So it's worked out good, and, and geez, I couldn't ask for a better uh, response. We've had. Just uh, nothing but a positive uh, feedback on the book. It's an easy read, 162 pages. There's probably 160 uh, colored pictures in there, and uh, uh, just about everybody I talked to really enjoyed it. And it's you know an hour and a half, two hour read, and away you go. So I'm very happy with it, and I, I didn't have an axe to grind, so I just sort of told stories from the very beginning. You know how I got involved, and and uh, through the years and uh, you know, my various uh, partners and some of the crazy things that happened on the road and and then uh, put it together, and it turned out to be Matt Lance. You know, it, it's funny because of the, you know, 40-plus stories that are in the book. I'm sure there were still some that hit the cutting room floor because, obviously, you're driving thousands of miles back and forth to, to venues and to shows, and there's stories that probably didn't get a chance to be told, but what was it like going back down memory lane and really reflecting on some of those great rides and some of those stories that you felt really stood out and put those into the book? Well, you know, when you first started, when I first started, I was 22 years old and I had no idea what the future lay. And when you're young like that, um, and, and really I, I was, uh, I was, uh, a bachelor for about almost two and a half years when I first started. So, you know, every day was a new adventure and you never think, you know, you never think, well, I'm not going to, I'll be okay. I, I train, you know, and I thought nothing of, you know, wrestling uh, seven days a week and sometimes, you know, two times a night. And, and I thought, well, this is part of the, you know, uh, deal that you had to do, you know, your, your learning experience. So, uh, I really never thought about the future, you know, in, in wrestling, you never, you never look too far ahead. Uh, you sort of look to the next day, the next match, and maybe the next program that you might be in, involved in. But other than that, you know, I, I mean, it, um, <laughs> like my blood brothers and I on the road, it was just uh, one night after another trying to do the best we could. 
Yeah, no, that's definitely something. And to have somebody in the car with you or a blood brother, as you say, the guys that shared those rides and all those miles. Is there somebody in your time, now you've had some great tag team partners, and I mentioned them in the intro, like Greg Gagne, who uh, I know you guys are still friends to this day, also your longtime partner, B. Brian Blair. Is there a, a road partner that made some of these stories uh, that much more uh, enjoyable to relive? Is there any uh, time specifically with one specific road buddy that stands out to you at all? Well, there was there was so many. Uh, you know, when I was down in Kansas City when it first started, after I, I started here in the, the AWA and went down there to get a little more seasoning, Mike George and I, uh, you know, traveled uh, occasionally with Lord Alfred Hayes, who was uh, just a wonderful guy, God rest his soul. And and uh, he and Roger Kirby were the big tag team uh, uh, villains down there. And uh, Mike and I worked a heck of a program with them and wound up uh, defeating them. But, you know, there were so many guys, uh, Rufus R. Jones that I used to travel with and Harley Race. And, uh, you know, and he was a real character because he never he never went under 100 miles an hour. I, I, I rode with him about three times and that was it because I, was remember, I, I remember him asking me to mix him uh, uh, scotch and water on the way back, on the way back from some town in Iowa to Kansas City, and he was going about 100 miles an hour. So I put about eight ounces of water and maybe a half an ounce of scotch in that thing. So <laughs> he was he was a real character. And then up here, uh, you know, there was Dickie Murdoch and Dusty Rhodes and oh gosh, uh, Wahoo McDaniel. I mean, there were so many guys that. Uh, not we we really didn't ride together, but we were on the road, you know, at the same time. So we were jockeying for position on the, the freeway, and uh, Dusty and Dick were crazy. And the, there's a couple stories I tell in there about Harley and the, pushing me down the Wichita um, uh, turnpike. There, uh, he, he snuck up behind me, and I had this um, uh, Hispanic wrestler who was making his way from New York down to Texas, so he rode with me from Kansas City to Wichita, we're driving to Wichita, and we're doing fine, and all of a sudden, I feel a little sort of a nudge in the back, and I'm looking at my speedometer, and I was going 70, and all of a sudden, my speedometer went 80, 90, and almost 100 miles an hour, and Harley had snuck up behind me, turned his lights off, and was pushing me down the freeway. (laughs) So, my, my partner, who didn't speak too too much English looked at me and his eyes were the size of tennis balls and he said, Oh my God <laughs> So Fio Cantillo's gotta be with us and the way we went and then he he passed me on the right hand uh shoulder of the road and he it must have been going hundred and fifteen miles an hour. So he got to the town about a half an hour before I did, so when I walked in he had already had his boots put on and he says, Hey Jimmy, how was your ride here? And he looked at me and I thought, Oh, you son of a gun but uh, that was just uh, one occasion, you know, that happened, and and there was many more like that, and and I, I'm sure all the guys who were in the various territories, you know, that, up until Vince, you know, started to take over in '83 and '85, there was like 26 territories in this in this country that you could wrestle in, and then when he took over, uh, he sucked all the talent away, and geez, there was no there was nobody else to work for but him. Yeah, that was a quick, uh, quick sweep there in the uh, the early '80s uh, with the WWF expansion, and I will get to that. But I want to kind of stay with the AWA in the beginning of your career, okay. if we can, sure. and those Blood Brothers. Now you mentioned Dusty Rhodes and Dick Murdoch, and the stories about them are just completely the thing of myth in terms of wrestling lore, but. As the the book states, there are some very true stories about them. But talk about the guys that were wrestling when you broke in. And, of course, we know you broke in in Vern Gagne's camp. And, wow, I can't even imagine what that was like to put you through to get into the business of professional wrestling. But what was the dynamic like of the AWA roster once you were getting into pro wrestling versus maybe how it was 10 or so years down the road as the business started to expand a little bit? Well, when I first started, uh, the, the top wrestling talent in the world, I'd say 85 or 90 percent, was in uh, the AWA. You know, you had Billy Robinson, Vern Gagne, Nick Bockwinkel, Bobby Heenan, uh, superstar Billy Graham, Wahoo McDaniel, uh, Dick Murdoch, Dusty Rhodes, um, Ray Stevens, Pat Patterson. This was over a period of time. 
uh, you know, Jerry Blackwell, uh, Hulk Hogan, uh, Ricky Martel. I mean, there was so many guys in there in the, in the beginning when, you know, when they had uh, Dick Murdoch. And then, you know, you can't help but mention the Crusher and the Bruiser and Mad Dog Vashon and Baron Von Raschke and Larry Henning. I mean, all the guys that came to the AWA in Minneapolis loved it, Ian, because uh, you made great money and you only worked 10 to 12 times a month, you know, maybe 14 to 15 times in, in a busy time. But uh, people enjoyed it because you had time off, you were paid well, Vern paid very well. And, uh, you know, for a young guy, you couldn't help but, uh, you know, benefit from these great, uh, this great array of talent, you know, night after night that uh, you watched them and uh, they they would uh after uh, you know your match they just offer some things and and you could, you just couldn't help but getting better now with the camp itself and it's great i mean it's funny to think about all those names that you said working for a regional promotion because it sounds like it's a global uh federation the way you just ran off all those names but breaking in under Vern and in the infamous Vern Gagne camp where, of course, you know, some pretty big names came out of your class, um, what was it like, the camaraderie of those guys? And as you, like I said, we just went into this whole thing about how the business changed, but what was that camaraderie like with uh, your group at the Vern Gagne camp? And if you could share some of those names, that would be uh, also very fantastic. Well, what happened, I had come back. I had a, a, a brief uh, rookie tryout with the Washington Redskins. Didn't make it. Came back. I was going to go uh, back into school and get my degree in Greg Gagne, who was uh, a freshman uh, walk-on at the university uh, with me. He was a quarterback, and I was a, a split end. That's where we met. He had transferred to uh, Wyoming to play quarterback. I stayed at Minnesota, and, and here I come back to go to school, get my degree. He called me up, and he said, geez, he says, my dad's got Ken Patera, who just uh, competed in the Olympics, and he has a camp, and he wants to know if you might be interested. So uh, Bob Ruggers, who was a former NFL uh, linebacker for about three teams, very talented, unbelievable, gifted athlete. Kazro uh, Vaziri, who is the Iron Sheik, who I affectionately call the Iron Schnook, uh, <laughs> came from Iran, and he was part. And then uh, the nature boy, Rick Flair, who turned into Rick Flair, was incredibly talented from day one. I mean, he was he was made for this business. And then Greg and I. So uh, Billy Robinson was really the taskmaster. And, and we, uh, this camp was six days a week, six hours a day for roughly, I think, 12 or 13 weeks. And Billy was sort of sadistic uh, at the best. And uh, not only did we do uh, conditioning, unbelievably, I mean, we we worked up to doing a 1,000 free squats a day. And that was a set of 100, 10 sets of 100. And then we ran, and then we did all the uh, uh, throws, submission, um, in, in the ring, on the mat. And, uh, you know, they never smartened us up. And then Vern would come in at about, you know, 4.30, and we, we called the end at 5, and he'd jump on us and tie us all in knots. So this went on for <laughs> about 12 weeks, and then finally they said, okay, you guys have graduated, and, uh, uh, you know, okay, here's what we're going to do. And, and he explained to us, you know, what we were going to do in the ring, and it was, it was sort of, uh, it, it was a real test, really, because... Uh, I remember my first match, I was in uh, Moorhead, Minnesota, and it was December 27th, uh, 1972. And I wrestled Dennis Stamp, who was an uh, amateur wrestler who Vern had broke in maybe four years earlier, and he had been down in Om uh, Omaha and Oklahoma and Texas. And we did a 15-minute draw, and I was completely winded. I came back in, and I'll never forget, I walked in, and we were in an armory, and I kicked this guy on waste paper basket. Dusty Rose was the main event, and he looked at me, and he looked at me, and he said, Jimmy, he says, what's the matter? He says, uh, this was your first match. He says, you're going to have a lot of stinkers. <laughs> so 
I sort of relaxed and, and uh, you know, tried to learn, you know, night after night after night, trying to relax. I think that that's the biggest uh, problem that new young guys have, green guys have in the ring. They, they can't relax. They're so tense. And what that does to your energy level after a period of time, you know, it tires you out to teach you. How long after you started and getting in the ring with the veteran, like a Dennis Stamp, how how fast do you think you really grasp on to, you know, the night after night activity of getting in the ring and having the right partner across from you uh, to kind of guide you? How long how long was of a process was that? Well, you know, uh, what had happened? I had been in the EWA probably for, I don't know, probably uh, uh, December, January, February, March, April, May. And then in June, they decided that I would get uh, more seasoning down in um, the central states where uh, Bob Geigel and Pat O'Connor and Gus Karras were the uh, promoters. So they sent me down there, and boy, was that a rude awakening. Because, you know, I was making six, seven, eight hundred dollars a week, a thousand dollars a week with Vern. And I, I remember first week I went down to Kansas City, I, I wrestled uh, six days, and I wrestled twice a night, and I made $175. And Oof. I thought, holy smokes, I don't think I'll be able to make it <laughs> on this. So uh, it, it was good, though, because the experience, you know, the night after night and the, the time I put in the ring and, the guys that I worked with, I worked with a guy named Bob Brown quite a bit who was from Winnipeg, and he, he sort of uh, uh, copied Gene Kaninsky's style, and he was a good worker, and then Roger Kirby, and, and there was a lot of good guys. And I, I tell you, I learned a lot down there, and, and you know, you can't help but learn uh, when you wrestle, you know, twice a night. And then uh, they finally put Mike George, who was a, a amateur wrestler from St. St. Joe and I together, and geez, we did a, a real nice job, and and uh, we're a nice babyface team, and and did very well. And then uh, I think I was down there for uh, almost a year, and then they decided to call me back. But first, uh, they sent me to Japan, so I think that was in um, uh, just the beginning of '74. So now. Before you, we get into Japan, because I do have a, a little bit I want to touch on with that, where did the drop kick come from, and how long after you started did the drop kick become a part of your arsenal? Because, like I said in the intro, you couldn't watch a Jim Brunzel match without waiting for that drop kick. Because when you went up in the air, it seemed like it was the, maybe the the most perfect piece of art as wa- watching you connect and come down. So, where did that come about, and how long did you adapt that after you started? Well, thank you, and I, I, I guess, you know, um, I was a high jumper in high school. I was a, a state high jump champion, both uh, indoor and outdoor, and I, I jumped 6'4 and a, a quarter um, in high school. I was undefeated my senior year, and I just had a lot of springs, so I it was so easy for me to jump up, and then once I learned the technique of, you know, jumping up and, and turning my body and then extending my legs, um, it was it was a natural move for me. And I I uh, I had 38 inch vertical uh, jump, and in college I jumped uh, six six a couple times, and then um, in a, a non actually in a, on a fourth try I jumped uh, six eight. So you know, and I weighed 215 pounds then. So I was probably the heaviest uh, high jumper at that time, and, and I'm still, I still, I did a dive straddle. I didn't do the Fosbury flop where they, you know, became so uh, common. Now everybody goes over backwards and kicks their legs, and, uh, you know, they've gone eight feet now. But uh, so, you know, I had a lot of spring. I used it to my advantage, and, uh, you know, I, I it was it was fun. And over the course of, you know, 25, 27 years, I threw thousands of drop kicks, and the only uh, bad thing about that was when I when I came down, I landed on my left forearm, and it sort of acted as a shock absorber, and I completely ruined my shoulder joint. So I had two surgeries on my shoulder, and then finally about, um, well, I think it was about six years ago, I had a total shoulder replacement on my left shoulder. So 
the wear and tear on your body, you know, like I said earlier, you don't really realize it when you're young, but, uh, you know, just the re- repetitiveness of of what you were doing in the ring every night and every month and every year uh, over a course of a couple decades, you know, really takes its toll on you. So now, yeah, I can imagine that. And, you know, like you said, the way you landed on it is definitely uh... – that's going to be a key to some wear and tear. But, you know, when you went to Japan, and uh, I remember your, your run in Japan uh, towards the end of your career, but getting there the first time and obviously seeing the difference between the American crowd and the Japanese crowd, was that anything that threw you off right away? Because we hear so many stories about the Japanese crowd being such a different place to perform because it's a, a different dynamic. But was that something that kind of uh, maybe threw you off, or was it something that made you feel a little bit more comfortable well, I worked hard every time I went in the ring, and I think the Japanese appreciated that. And um, uh, I w- was over there a number of times, and I remember the first time I was over there, I was with <laughs> I was with quite a, quite a crew. I was with uh, Tony Marino, Tex McKenzie, uh, Eddie Farhad, who was a sheik, um, Sailor Art, uh, Ed White from... Uh, Montreal, and uh, the Brute uh, from uh, from Tampa. And I, I think the third or fourth night over there, I was in the cage match, and I thought, holy Jesus, what am I doing here? But it, it was fun. I, I enjoyed it. It was hard work. You you earned every cent that you, um, you know, you got. But I think, you know, the, the Japanese audience uh, appreciated, you know, there wasn't, and I and I can I don't know now I haven't been over there since '92 but um, there wasn't that playing to the crowd that a lot of the you know wrestling promotions did you know more in the middle to late '80s and then when Vince you know took over you know it it, it just sort of became more of a melodrama rather than in Japan I mean they kicked the snot out of you. And uh, it was a it was a fight every night, you know. But uh, I think the people appreciated, you know, the harder you work, they they applauded, and when you did something good, they applauded. And uh, I really enjoyed. It. I enjoyed it. every time I went over to Japan. I told my wife, I said someday I'd like to take you there because the people are beautiful. The country's uh, unbelievably uh, gorgeous and. And, um, you know, considering that we bombed the shit out of them a couple different times with the (laughs) atomic bomb, uh, they still are a wonderful people, and they were very kind to to all the foreigners. Yes, uh, indeed, quite resilient when it comes to some of the adversity faced. But uh, from what we've heard by talking to some of the guys that still go over there and wrestle regularly, that the crowd is sort of changing over a little bit into somewhat more of a sports entertaining style of crowd. Uh, but kind of tying into the book, are there any stories from your days in Japan that make it into Matlands? You know, there was one story, in, and, it, you know, we traveled by plane, boat, uh, train, bus, and I remember this was the first trip we went over there. We were going from... Uh, the main island to the north island, and we had to take this ferry, uh, and it was we were crossing the Amori Straits, so we got on this huge ferry. I mean, it was huge. It looked like a, almost an ocean liner, and it had buses and everything. And you know, we get on the boat, and everybody gets settled, and we're sitting in the middle and everything, and and we it's a four and a half hour, you know, trip over to the north island, so. We're going, and my partner says, you know, Jimmy says, or Tony Marino told me, he says, you know, he says, this is usually a rough ride. He said, the the, the Straits of Amori are noted for being the top three areas for the roughest uh, water in the world. <laughs> so all of a sudden, we're, we're getting tossed around. We had 40 to 50 foot waves on this damn trip, and everybody on the boat, got seasick. And I mean, Tony Marino was right across from me. He said, Jim, just look straight ahead and breathe deeply. So I tried that for about an hour, and I finally crawled into the bathroom, 
and the guy right next to me in the stall next to me was Tony Marino, and we were both retching. <laughs> you know, it was just horrible. We got off the boat, and everybody was green. And thank God we didn't have to work that night, but I, I think it affected me for a couple of days. I couldn't eat. And, uh, you know, four hours of that, and the, the, the boat would go down. It would go down vertically, and as it went down, it would rock right to left. So this went on for four hours, and I mean, it was just, and the water came over the bow, and I mean, the, it, was, it was looking, it, it looked like when you went outside, or I looked outside, it looked like it was a, a thunderstorm, but there wasn't rain at all. It was just the waves. Wow. That's, uh, <laughs> yeah, it was, that's it was horrible. Else, man. I, I, oh, I told our, I told Joe Higuchi, who was our, uh, Guy, he was our a guide. I said, Joe, please don't tell me we have to take this son of a gun home. I said, I, I'll pay my own way to fly. And he said, No, no. He said, We we fly home. And I said, Thank God. <laughs> well, speaking of flying, let's just bring up the the High Flyers, your great team with Greg Gagne, two time AWA Tag Team Champions. You had a absolutely memorable feud with Adrian Adonis and Jesse the Body Ventura, the East West Connection. Could you share some of your memories of working against those guys? And actually, I mean, even so, I mean, I know it's going to be hard to sum up in brief, but your tag team with Greg Gagne. Well, I think the reason why Greg and I benefited so well is because the enormous talent, like I mentioned before, I mean, you know, Bachwinkle and Stevens and Patterson and Stevens and, you know, everybody we worked with were just incredible. And, and you know, Bobby Heenan on the corner being the manager Night after night after night, you never had a bad match. And then, you know, Jesse came in and uh, Keith Franks, Adrian Adonis, who had just absolutely brilliant timing in the ring. He was wonderful to work with. Jesse was great on the microphone, but he was very unathletic. Um, uh, they they complemented each other very well. And uh, I remember when I came back from North Carolina and uh, we had worked with them. Um, I remember the first time uh, we had actually sold out the St. Paul Civic Center at the biggest crowd ever, 19,000 some odd people. And it was a double cage match. It was Baron Von Raschke against Jerry Blackwell. And it was Greg and I against the East-West Connection. And I mean to gosh, that place was just packed. And the people were humming, and we had a hell of a match. And I'll never forget this, and that was the biggest payoff I had. Uh, I remember I made $4,724 for that match. And uh, that didn't get surpassed until I, I worked, uh, you know, in one of the WrestleManias uh, for Vince. But it was a hell of a uh, We had worked... Uh, I don't know how many times with uh, Adrian and uh, Jesse, but uh, it was it was easy because, like I say, everybody loved Minneapolis. Nobody had any real ego problems, and and everybody worked hard to get the match over. And and hell, it was you know it was like uh, uh, Christmas Eve every night. <laughs> you know, and it's funny when you you think of all the names that you mentioned. A few years later, you know, you'd be looking across the WWF locker room and you'd pretty much be seeing almost all these guys that you've mentioned from that glory days run of the AWA. But what was that jump like to go to the WWF as they were expanding and see so many of your your comrades and your guys that you've been coming up through the other territories with all in the same locker room as one big giant all-star team? What was that like as your first impression? Well, you know, I really didn't want to leave Minneapolis, but uh, the things were deteriorating so bad that uh, it just happened that, you know, it was uh, the best thing to do. And, and you know, when, when I got there, I think I started in uh, the last week of June in 1985, and I remember there was 60 guys there, 60 guys that Vince had taken from all the different territories. And there was three towns a night, 20 guys in each town, and uh, it was, everybody was trying to get over, and uh, everybody was trying to, you know, look good in uh, Vince's eyes. And the whole concept that Vince had wanted to create was 
there was no programs, there was no continuities, you know, to the matches like everybody had done before in all the territories because, you know, a match would start out and then something had happened and then you'd build and then something had happened and then you'd, you'd build for, you know, maybe half a year uh, with uh, continuity and then maybe you'd have a blow-off match, either be a cage match or maybe it'd be, a, you know, a lumberjack match or whatever, or loser and leave town, but Vince didn't do it that way. He would he he had all these superstars, and what he was trying to do was create uh, different characters that he could market and make money with. You know, with all the different merchandise. So one time you might be out in L.A. and uh, uh, Brian and I might be against the Hearts and have a heck of a match, and then we wouldn't come back there for six months. So there was no continuity. Everybody was vying uh, for a position. Um, uh, Vince sort of uh, poo-pooed the old uh, athletic uh, babyface type guy. He was looking for a guy that could uh, sell tickets and make him merchandise money. So that's what everybody was trying to gear themselves to. And uh, consequently, there was a, you know, whenever you work, the way we worked, uh, I remember when they put Brian and I together uh, as the Killer Bees, which was a great gimmick. I mean, here we were, a babyface team, had these masks, you know, and for once, you know, in, in, in a long history of professional wrestling, the babyfaces would do something that normally heels would do and win a match, you know, by switching and putting these masks on and sliding in and nobody knew who was the legal guy. And Vince didn't go anywhere with it, you know. He sort of poo-pooed on it, and uh, it, it was really disheartening uh, to realize that uh, Brian and I, you know, we worked hard every night, had a lot of good matches with uh, all the teams that we worked with, but never found favor with Vince. So it was sort of like an uphill battle, and and, and it got to the point where, you know, uh, we were we were wrestling 27 days a month, I guess for three years straight. So no matter what, too, if you got hurt, Brian got hurt, tore his, uh, he tore his meniscus real bad, and his knee swelled up, and they actually drained his knee, and they did a surgery, and he never missed a day. He stood in the wow. corner, and I did most of the matches. And then I remember I got, uh, I was wrestling, this was towards the end of the run for me, but I was wrestling the Barbarian in um, Salt Lake City, and he had a heck of a, a deal that he did. When you come flying off the ropes, he put his foot up, and he hits in the jaw. Well, yeah, I come flying off the ropes, and he put his foot up, and his toe got me right in the chin and snapped me back and hit the back of my head on the mat, and I was out colder than a mackerel. So when they got me out of the ring, I didn't know where I was. I thought I was in Japan, and I was really unstable for three days with a third-degree concussion and never missed wow. a shot. <laughs> oh, my goodness. They, they, didn't, they didn't care if you had a concussion. You you had to wrestle, otherwise you wouldn't get paid. Yeah, times have definitely changed when it comes to uh, concussions. The Lord knows you guys probably have had so many that you might not even have known about just because of the general Wear and tear, but, you know, you mentioned uh, teaming with Brian Blair now. I know this this could be a question of ignorance, but I just want to make sure. I mean, there's been speculation and whatnot. But now, is it true that Hulk Hogan suggested putting you and Brian together as the killer bees no. to Vince? No. Actually, it was, um, oh, gosh, Billy. Uh, he was from Toronto, and he was a commentator. Oh, Billy, Billy Red Lions? Yes. He suggested it. He was the one that came up with the Killer Bees because Brian Blair and Jim Brunzel. And in, and it was funny because Lanny Poffel had these black and yellow striped uh, pants, tights, and he had extra a couple extra pairs, so Brian and I wore them. And they called us the Killer Bees. And it, uh, Hulk, I think Hulk, actually Hulk just said, hey, Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to put a good word in for you. You're on your own, because he was. They were running him to death for, you know, 
countless days in a row, and you know he was right. making fifty. He was making fifty thousand dollars a week just on wow. merchandise. You know, so he he was just worrying about himself. So he he he, you know, he he put a good word in for both Brian and I. But uh, the the you know the killer bees was uh, Billy Red Lions. God rest. Yeah, and life. also uh, the great mass confusion line uh, also. Uh, to come from Billy Red Lions as well, where the mask did come on. Now, if you could, and I know we're going to start winding down in a minute here and get into some other aspects of uh, of your career in the book, but the tag team scene of the mid to late 80s in the WWF is something that will never be seen ever again. You had the Hearts, who you guys were basically married to. You had the Bulldogs and Demolition yeah. and the Rougeos and the Powers of Pain and the, and the Sheep Herders and everybody you could possibly think of. But did it make for a very difficult competitive landscape based off of all these great teams and these great workers? Well, it, 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 it again the, the things that all of us had had grown up in this business and had been so familiar with was thrown aside. There was no continuity. So, you know, we might be in in San Francisco with the uh, Hearts one week and have a hell of a match and have some sort of a, uh, interference at the end, and then the next time we'd be back there in a babyface match against the Bulldogs. And and uh, there was just no rhyme or reason to anything, and I think it frustrated um, a number of teams. And I remember they had uh, Brutus Beefcake and Greg Valentine, uh, I think, had the belts for a long time, and it just frustrated the crap out of me and Brian because, uh, you know, we had good matches with them, but, um, you know, and then and then the Hearts, too, you know. I mean, Bret Hart was a hell of a worker. Jim uh, Neidhart was very hard to work with because he was so inconsistent in the ring. I, I uh, Bret sort of carried that tag team from, you know, word go, and then... Uh, uh, Jimmy just sort of fell into place, and uh, you know it was it was hard for all the tag teams, I think. And every you know the Rougeos were good, and then you had the Strike Force, and then you had Powers of Pain, and then uh, you know it was just it was sort of uh, Vince didn't really uh, put too much emphasis on the tag team. What what he just more or less did was throw us in there as, you know, characters. And now, obviously, you know, it's a, it could be a tough question, but you've had so much tag team experience. Do you prefer or did you prefer working singles as opposed to tag team, or did you enjoy being in a team more? Well, to be honest, I wanted to do what, whatever could make me the most money because that's why I was in pro wrestling. Um I, I never, you know, let any ego get involved. I, 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 I thought, well, whatever, you know, I can do, and you know, you can't fight City Hall. You know, I was down in the Mid Atlantic in '79 and '80, and and by myself, and I enjoyed it. Uh, came back, you know, worked with Greg as a tag team, enjoyed it. Went out to New York. Hopefully, you know, I thought, well, maybe they'll, um, you know, use me as a single, but. Uh, the writing and they had so damn many guys they had to throw guys you know uh, tag team up so that was fine you know I I just uh, I had no regrets I, I I worked hard every time I went in the ring and you know tried to have a good match no matter what and uh, I was a little disappointed uh, in the way things went in the uh, WWF or WWE but that's the way it went you know I I mean I have. Uh, no regrets. I, I I think the only regret I probably had was I would I would have left wrestling sooner. But you know when you're you're making good money and wrestling absolutely does nothing for you uh, in the real world. I mean it doesn't prepare you for anything because you you sort of live in a, a sheltered world. You're told you know where you're going to be and who your opponent is and what general things to say. Etc. Cetera, Etc. Cetera. And then you're given a book of tickets, and you know, on on you go. But and then when you get out in the real world, you know, people say, "Okay, uh, what's your background?" And you say, "Well, 
You know, I, I've been in a lot of airports. I've been in a lot of motels. I've been in a lot of arenas. <laughs> I've been in a lot of gyms, you know. I remember, you know, I, I flew, we flew so much at the end, and I remember riding with people on the plane and, and talking with businessmen, and I had probably about 30 to 50 uh, business cards, and these these businessmen would say, Jim, when you're, when you're done with wrestling, you give us a call or write to us. So when I was getting out of wrestling, uh, I wrote to these people, and I think I sent out roughly 35 letters with a real short resume, and um, only one person returned, and they said they weren't hiring. So, uh. you know, it, it's, you know, it's, uh, what can you do, me, you know, today, you know, and, and when you're not on TV, you know, you're old news. So, you know, it was it's a real hard adjustment, and, and when you look at the guys, that wrestled during my uh, time slot and error, you know, everybody's got to work. I mean, there's nobody. I mean, you know, Hulk, you know, he was he was a golden goose, but, I mean, everybody still had to find a job. You know, right. and you get, you get anomalies like, uh, you know, Greg Valentine, who's six months older than me, and he's still wrestling, and, and Ric Flair, you know, who's, <laughs> he's, he's eight months older than me, and, uh, he he can't he he owes so much money he can't he can't quit so it it's a shame but uh, that's the way it is and uh, I think we all knew that getting in the business and and that's the life that we chose. Yeah, and as you mentioned, you know the the guys from your era, and unfortunately this year has not been very uh, very kind in terms of losing some of the greats from the wrestling industry, including Vern Gagne, including Dusty Rhodes. And this past week, unfortunately, losing uh, Roddy Piper at the age of 61, which is just, it was just absolutely shocking, uh, his death this past Friday. But uh, could you share some memories that you can of the Hot Rod and uh, your time, uh, I guess, you know, traveling, if you did with him, and uh, is the Hot Rod in the book? You know, I just mentioned that Roddy is probably being one of the toughest guys. Roddy Piper was a, a tough, uh, you know, just a city kid, came from Winnipeg, and he was tough as nails. And uh, Roddy realized what he had to do uh, to be on top in this business, and he did it. You know, he his wit and savvy were second to none. He knew, uh, he knew what the promoter wanted. Uh, he was incredible on the microphone. Uh, he had probably the quickest hands I've ever seen of anybody. You know, he would have been a great prize fighter. He would have been a great boxer. I mean, he beat the crap out of, I, I think it was, uh, oh, shoot, who was the guy from, uh, they had uh, the guy with the uh, Afro-American with the Mohawk. Oh, uh, Mr. T. Yeah, Mr. T. He beat the crap out of him in the in that one WrestleMania, and uh, he was just he was shoulders you know head and shoulders above everybody, and he had an agenda, and that's what he stuck to, and he was totally different outside the ring. I mean, when when he left the ring, I you know I I know he was a hard partying guy, but. I know his family meant everything to him. So once he was off camera, boom, that was it. I never saw Roddy. I mean, I might have partied with him once or twice in, you know, the six years or seven years I was with the uh, WWF. And then when I went down to North Carolina, he had just left. So, and he had, he he and Flair just did unbelievable business down in the, uh, North Carolina, and, uh, you know, he was just, he was one of a kind, I mean, I, and he was a tough, I mean, he, he had all sorts of injuries, and, you know, there was rumors that he had, you know, some form of cancer, and, and, uh, he won that, and, uh, I mean, he was a hard, uh, living guy, I mean, he partied like a son of a gun, and, and, uh, I remember one time we were in, the L.A. Sports Auditorium, and he got done wrestling, and he was 
we we had these separate rooms. You didn't have like a, a a locker room. They were sort of like different rooms. And you'd go shower and you'd walk back to your lock our room. And he reached around for a towel and he stuck his finger in a socket. And it was live. And he went down like a ton of bricks and was shaking on the floor. And they took him to the hospital. And he had a he was lucky he didn't get killed. You know, being electrocuted. But shit, he he overcame that. And you know he was. <laughs> He was just a tough kid, and and it just I, you know when you think of somebody dying in their sleep of a heart attack, uh, but then you look back on his life and man he, he you know he had a rough, I mean he was a rough he partied hardy and uh, he was you know he was uh, doing whatever he could to further himself and his family for his whole career so uh, God bless him I, you know he he'll be missed dearly and I, I remember this past. December, I brought my grandkids who were uh, 7 and 10 years old to the matches. They had a Raw here in Minneapolis. And I was talking with Hulk and then I went to go get these tickets uh, for our seats and then Roddy came out and took a picture with my two grandsons and I didn't get a chance to talk to him. And I hadn't seen Roddy in years, probably 25, 30 years since I'd seen him. But uh, my uh, grandkids said, "Yeah, we 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 took a picture with the hot dog, <laughs> and and they showed me the picture, and I have the picture today, and and it was just a shame that you know I just you know didn't get a chance to talk to him. That is a shame, and I don't want to end on a somber note like that. Before we get into the sure. big plug for the book, if you could just if you I know you've had thousands of matches, but if you could pick a favorite match and a favorite opponent, what would that be?" Well, I, I'll say one of my favorite opponents with the WWF was Bret Hart. He and I worked really good together. We had some great matches. We had a match at the, the Spectrum in Philly, uh, and there was a 30-minute draw that was incredible. And probably the uh, the all-time match that, that I had was a consistently great match was with Nick Bockwinkel, who I thought was one of the greatest world champions ever. Not only was he a class act uh, outside the ring, but he worked his ass off in the ring. And we had an hour draw in Winnipeg that was, uh, you know, if somebody would have told me after the match that it was a work, I, I never would have believed it because we beat the snot out of each other. And uh, mm. to, to be in the ring uh, with him and his brilliant uh, Bobby Heenan, who I consider probably the greatest overall talent, you know, all the way around that I ever was involved with was Bobby. So, I, you know, Nick and Bobby were just incredible, and they, they made so much money for all the promotion that, you know, promoters that they worked for. And, and uh, Nick was just a, a wonderful, wonderful world champion. I, uh, you know, he, he carried himself so well, and he, he spoke so highly, and you know, I think he was really regarded as, you know, uh, one of the finest uh, uh, world champions in the AWA. And uh, I know right now he's got some Alzheimer's going, but uh, uh, God bless him. He was just uh, a wonderful guy. And, and uh, like I say, him and Bobby were uh, incomparable. Yeah, some of the finest uh, promo work was Nick Bockwinkle and the High Flyers because the parallel between the two teams was just off the charts as he had his snobbish nose in the air and you guys are just uh, full of energy. Exactly. It was always a great, great dynamic. It's like uh, those two things that mix so perfectly together, and that was definitely uh, the High Flyers and Nick Bockwinkle and whoever his, his partner was going to be. Well, thank you. I, You know, it was a time in my career that, uh, you know, when I was here in, with Greg, I mean, we had good matches day in and day out. I mean, I don't think we – we never had a match that was, you know, not a seven or eight, you know. And, you know, it's funny because you went to different territories and, you know, you had to fight your ass off to have a six because the guy you were working with didn't want to have a good match. He, he was pissed off at this or pissed off at that. And that's why I was so spoiled in the AWA because guys were – they were true stars. They appreciated the the opportunity and the, the, the time off that they had, plus making a tremendous living. So, you know, uh, the AWA was uh, just an absolute wonderful place to work for.
Without a doubt. One of my favorite promotions of all time now. Of course, our guest is Jumpin' Jim Brunzel. The book is Matt Lands and Jumpin' Jim. Please tell all the listeners of the two-man power trip of wrestling just where exactly they can find the book and where else they can find you on the Internet, social media, whatever else you can provide. But please send them for this book. It seems like it is a must-guess. Well, Ian, thank you so much. The book, you can go to blurb, B-L-U-R-B dot com. And once you get to that, there will be a little uh, bookstore. You hit, you hit the icon bookstore and then type in Matt Lance, and it will take you right to it. You'll have a preview uh, of the book, and then you can buy it there. It's $25 plus shipping. Um, I think uh, just this past week I was notified that it was one of the best sellers uh, so far from that company. So uh, we're going to be doing some um, book signings, and I might be going to Winnipeg to do a book signing. So it's just been uh, a great uh, deal for me because uh, I wanted to share uh, with people, you know, uh, stories that that were true. And after you read the book, you know, people say, geez, you're lucky to be alive. <laughs> and I agree. So uh, it's at blurb.com. Uh, just punch bookstore and hit Madlands, M-A-T-L-A-N-D-S, and it'll come right up in. Well, thank-